Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Power of the Gospel. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Free at Last. Freedom is a great word. During times like Remembrance Day in Canada or Veterans Day in the U.S., we're often told of the soldiers who died defending freedom. It resonates with us because freedom is so precious and we think it worthwhile to remember those who fought and died for it. But freedom itself does mean different things to different people. For those in prison, freedom is a longing to get out from behind bars. For those in oppressed countries, it's a longing to live without fear. For those of us who speak of political freedom, it means voting for whomever we want. Religious freedom means being able to practice our own religion free from persecution of unjust laws. We often also define freedom as the ability to determine our own destiny or the freedom to speak and publish our opinions and views while being protected from persecution. The late Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker defined freedom in this way. He said, I am a Canadian free to speak without fear, free to worship in my own way, free to stand for what I think right, free to oppose what I believe wrong, or free to choose those who shall govern my country. This heritage of freedom I pledge to uphold for myself and all mankind. Now, most of us will want to define the freedom of a citizen in some way like that. Now, when I was a younger preacher, I never expressed Christian freedom in that way. I always said that Christian freedom is a unique kind of freedom. I used to say that Christian freedom was the freedom to do what Christ wants, that true freedom is a kind of slavery to Christ. But I was always hesitant to say that it was freedom to do what we want because, as I saw it, that would implicitly encourage sin. Or I was also afraid that we might want things that do not put Christ at the center. So, for instance, I might want to have a nice house and a good job and a spouse and and children and good health, and there is nothing wrong with that. But what if Christ were to call me to the mission field, or he called me to give sacrificially? And so I was always quick to say that I must learn to curb my freedom to the will of God. After all, we're slaves to Christ, and that's a glorious slavery indeed. And yet, I keep being drawn back to Romans 7 verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Paul is saying that when Christians sin, they are acting contrary to their desires. In short, every act of sin for Christians is not an act of freedom at all, but it is a savage attack curbing our freedom. The flesh overwhelms our free will. Sin is, and this is only true of the Christian, sin is doing what I don't want to do. See, for unbelievers, sin is doing what I indeed wish to do. True Christians want to do the will of God. Paul said that very well in Philippians 3 verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. See, if you're a believer, you understand this thought. It would be a pleasure to suffer the loss of everything if in the process you knew Christ more. 
Furthermore, if you had to choose, should I lose Christ or any other thing? We would cling to Christ and we would lose all other things. I remember when my friend Richard came to Christ. He had resisted the gospel for 10 years. And one day he called me over to his house and said, John, you know that I didn't want to be a Christian because I knew it would be hard. But now I want to be a Christian. And I asked him what changed his mind. And he told me, I can't live without Christ. See, that's conversion. But the minute that desire for Christ is awakened in us, at the same moment, a battle ensues. The flesh and the body tug in two different directions, and you're not free to do what you want. You desire Christ, but your flesh desires comfort and self-indulgence and a position of honor and wealth and earthly security and earthly pleasure. Your flesh is like a great oppressor that keeps you from being free to do what you want. But as we have seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, in the midst of our struggle, we have the assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that we're not in despair in the midst of our struggle. See, I'm reminded of the woman who was caught in adultery. Of course, that's described in John chapter 8. They were going to stone her, and Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what we've heard from our master. Hear me. God who will lead you to his holiness, to be free to do what you really want to do, is not condemning you. No condemnation. And with this wonderful, assuring message ringing in our ears, we are told why it is possible to be free from condemnation. Romans 8 verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice the three different laws in this passage. In verse 3, and we're going to look at that in just a moment, Paul mentions the Mosaic law. And then if we go back to verse 2, Paul mentions the law of sin and death. Now go back to Romans 7 verse 21. There he said, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So we notice three laws. First is the Mosaic law, which declares God's intentions, which we now love. Then there's the law of sin and death, which cooperates with our flesh, waging a war against our will. And now in verse 2, we notice the law of the spirit of life. Now, that's a lot of laws, and they are conflicting. Every Christian is just a bit of a schizophrenic. All Christians are plagued by being on the battleground with two different wills. It's like there are two sheriffs in town, a good one and a bad one, both trying to lay down separate and conflicting laws. It's like having two different dogs living in your house, a good one and a bad one, and they're constantly fighting. Each law makes demands, and each law demands allegiance, and it seems as if the bad law, the law of sin and death, seems to win the day, at least at times. But now for the first time, Paul mentions a third law the law of the Holy Spirit. Please notice what Paul calls the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit, he says, of life. And this is crucial. The Holy Spirit is the creator of life. As the third person of the Trinity, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we were told there that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the creation. And later in Romans 8, verse 11, Paul will say that if the same Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is alive in us, he will give life to our mortal bodies. And so we learn that the Holy Spirit played a key role in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that fits well with what we've read elsewhere. So, for instance, 
In John 6, verse 63, Jesus said that it was the Holy Spirit who gives us eternal life. And so we know at conversion, according to John 3, verse 8, we are born of the Spirit. So then, the law of the Spirit of life means a law concerning the life to come, eternal life, which is infused into us today. And this is to be thought of as a law even as we think of the Mosaic law as a law, and even as we think of the law of sin and death as a law. And the law of the spirit of life supersedes the law of sin and death. And furthermore, the law of the spirit of life brings freedom to do what I truly want to do. Let me try to illustrate that. Imagine you want to fly. and You've been watching the birds, and they look so free and so lovely. And you'd love to do what they do. So you stand in your backyard and you jump as high as you can, but you fall back down. You're discouraged. But you know you want to be free to fly. So you climb to the roof of your house and you jump from there as high as you can, and you find out that the only difference between jumping from your backyard and jumping from the roof of your house is the pain that you feel when you hit the ground. Why is that? Because there is a real physical law that you cannot violate. It's called the law of gravity, and no matter how hard you try, gravity always wins because it is the law. Wishing and trying does not remove this law. Now look back at Romans 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. That's just like the law of gravity, and it's working on you. But now listen, if you go to an airport, And look at those huge jumbo jets rumbling down the runway. And then, well, those huge weights just rise up into the air. Well, what's just happened? Has the law of gravity been suspended? Well, no, it hasn't. But there is another law. It's called the law of lift. And even while the law of gravity is still there, the law of lift allows those huge planes to function and to fly using another law. And that's precisely what we find when we come to the Holy Spirit. The law of sin and death is still at work, but there is another law that supersedes that law. More when we come back. In Romans 8, we've just learned one of the greatest realities for every Christian. There is no condemnation. Paul now starts to explain why that is true by introducing us to the law of the Spirit. This law is actually the key to finding our ultimate freedom. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will explain why that's so and how we can start applying this new law into our lives. October balances on the threshold of seasonal change. It sits between suntan and snow, announcing the end of summer activity and the preparations of winter. But October is more than just a shift between summer and winter tires. This month of change has a beauty all its own. Trees become bouquets of red, orange, yellow, and tan. Cupboards and barns are filled with a harvest from garden and field. Families will gather together around a table for a celebration meal of gratitude. This Thanksgiving season, we want to express our deepest gratitude for all you do. Your prayers, gifts, and encouraging words mean more than you could ever imagine. Thank you for faithfully tuning into this Bible teaching program. It's our honor to partner with you to share the love and truth of God's Word. 
For more information or to give a special Thanksgiving gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Romans 7.21 will always be true of believers until Christ comes again. When we want to do good, evil is right there. You'll never stop fighting the flesh. I had a seminary professor who was asked, when do we stop fighting sin? And he said, several hours after you're dead, I never trust warm flesh. But there is a new law that actually sets us free to do what has been awakened in our heart, to follow Christ. But what is this practically like? Well, let's read the first part of Romans 8 verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Let me explain this using our gravity example. The law of lift has done what my effort in jumping as high as I could from the roof of my house could not do. Or to put it plainly, God has done what has never been accomplished before. I was trying to do right by obeying God, for God had awoken me to this in my conversion, but the law of sin and death kept dragging me down. Now remember, Paul has told us that in our struggle with sin, we found out that we were not condemned. Christ has taken our condemnation, and that's true. But there is more truth that we should learn, and it's this. We're not condemned, but sin itself has been condemned. Look again at Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now that's such good news. Sin is condemned by Jesus in the cross. Your sin is not condemning you. Your sin is condemned. Now let's take us back one step at a time. First, sin could not be defeated by the law of Moses in which God showed the human race what righteousness looked like. The law was powerless to defeat sin. Furthermore, sin could not be defeated by human effort, for the flesh simply overpowered the will. Romans 7.21 was still in effect, where Paul said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. But that's not the end of the matter. We noticed that sin could not be defeated, but we noticed that Jesus defeated sin in the flesh. And it's here that we must pay close attention to this text. This text does not say that Jesus came in sinful flesh, but rather in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that is key because Jesus never sinned. He's the only person who was not born into sin as we are. So Romans 8.3 says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh or with the appearance of sinful flesh. What Paul has in mind is that even while Christ never sinned, he was at the same time vulnerable to all the temptations we face. His struggle with temptation is not a charade, but it was in fact real. He was genuinely tempted to fall down and worship Satan, to escape the suffering that lay before him, to gain a life of ease and abandon his mission. This stuff tempted Jesus, even though his flesh had not learned a habitual pattern of repeated disobedience the way ours does. Still, his flesh had all the desires of self-preservation that are built into the flesh by God. And Jesus wanted peace and security and pleasure to find acceptance by others and more, just like we do. But he did not allow his flesh to rule his decision-making process. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, that temptation was only heightened. He's praying in the garden. He's asking God to remove from him the cup of suffering. 
His flesh no more wanted suffering than yours does or mine, and yet he sincerely prays, yet not my will but yours be done. He simply wanted God's will, and in his case, his will overruled his flesh so that he was freely able to surrender his will to the Father. And so that's the point of this passage. Sin was unable to subdue Christ in the way that it subdues you and I. And in fact, Jesus, by way of the cross, not only resisted sin, but defeated sin and condemned sin. Sin, instead of ruining Christ, lay ruined at the feet of Christ. Now let's go one step further. Christ's victory over sin was credited to our account. So let's read the beginning of Romans 8 verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Think of it this way. When your favorite sports team wins an important game, you might say, they did very well. Or you might even say, we did very well, even though we weren't on the team. But you wouldn't say, I did very well because you didn't do it. But in the case of the righteous requirements of the law, that is exactly what you should say. I did well. Why? Because of what the older theologians called imputed righteousness. Christ's righteousness is counted to you or thought of as if you had done it. Now look to the end of verse 4. Who had done it? Who had seen Christ's righteousness reckoned to them? Verse 4 says, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then the last part of verse 5 says, Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Notice again who can receive credit for Christ's perfect righteousness. It is those who walk according to the Spirit. Now, walking is an image which is lost on many of us because we don't walk. We drive. But before cars, everyone would walk. Walking slowed down the pace of life. Walking made you more deliberative because you might really think about where you would go before you actually went. But walking did something else. Walking created community. People seldom walked alone. Sometimes this was because of the dangers on the road, and and sometimes it's because they had to carry things together. But whatever the reason, walking was a social event. And who you walked with said everything about you. You can only imagine Jesus walking with the 12 disciples because they walked and walked for days. And in those days, they came to know Jesus intimately. As they walked, he would train them. As they walked, they would talk. Walking implies a journey, and it implies a relationship. And so walking became an illustration of the bent or the direction in a person's life. Now listen, when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and he becomes our walking companion. But there's more. The text actually doesn't say we walk with the Holy Spirit, but rather we walk according to the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is an image of not only walking with the Holy Spirit, but learning to walk as the Holy Spirit walks. We, we watch him, and we walk in the ways he walks. So let's unpack that. The Holy Spirit has become our friend, our companion, and our guide. What I mean by this is that when I come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live within. I have a developed relationship with the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13 to 14 has Jesus promising the following. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So here's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
through teaching and Bible reading, he is reinforcing for us and telling us of the glory of Jesus and of Christ's great victory over the flesh, of the fact that sin lies in ruins, and about our calling to be intimate with Jesus, and he is declaring it into our hearts. He's speaking into us. He's guiding us. Sometimes he convicts us. He says, you're sinning, and he leads us to the sweetness of repentance. He reminds us of grace, that our condemnation is gone, and he gives us power of what we could not do on our own. He gives us this special gift called the gifts of the Holy Spirit to carry out the ministry of Jesus, and he teaches us to live like Jesus. He helps us to love the words of Jesus, but there's more. Verse 5 reads, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So now we're slowly getting at the heart of the issue. It's a question of a mindset. We are becoming aware of the Spirit's promptings, and this is the beginning of the law of lift. And as we become aware of His promptings, we begin to realize that what He does supersedes the law of the flesh. John, thanks again for today. Let me ask you a quick question. How do we understand the prompting of the Spirit? Yeah, it's very difficult to be able to answer that in just an objective way because in some ways that's a very subjective experience, but I think every believer has an awareness of what that is. I mean, there might be, I know that I have been times when I've just been angry with, uh, I'd say, my wife or my children, and I immediately hear the Holy Spirit reminding me of Scripture. You know, don't let the sun go down in your anger or something like that. That just comes from the voice of the Spirit. We're going to say more as we continue to study this. What a great message on what it means to live in the power of the Spirit. We no longer live under the law of sin and death, but through Christ, we can experience new life. And this new life in which we walk with the Spirit and set our minds on Him is the picture of true freedom for the believer. A great reminder of how the gospel is not only good news, but it empowers us to live in victory every day. Well, I hope this study has encouraged you personally as we continue to strive to live not according to the flesh, but led by the Spirit. Join us again tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld continues to teach us on the life in the Spirit from Romans chapter 8. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. There is nothing that happens apart from the hand of God. He rules everything, from the mountains, the valleys, the planets orbiting the sun, to the breath flowing in and out of our lungs. In all things, God is sovereign. That's the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's annual scripture calendar. The 2024 In All Things scripture calendar reminds us every month in beautiful images, scripture, and inspirational thoughts that God is ever-present. It also contains exclusive quotes from Dr. John Neufeld's new book, available in the new year. It's our hope that this wall calendar resource, complete with a one-year Bible reading plan, will encourage you and help you maintain a spiritual discipline of daily Bible reading in the new year. As part of our commitment to providing biblical resources without barrier, we're offering this calendar for free just for the asking. 
To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.